Hey everybody, I'm Jason, your host of Let Freedom Reign, an equine industry leading podcast that talks to folks from all different walks of life who share their testimony of adversities and perseverance and how the horse has helped them through their journey. Stay tuned. We're going to have a great time. Come along for the ride. Welcome, everybody, to another episode here at Let Freedom Reign Podcast. You know, this week celebrates episode number 45 and the second in a three-part series with Glenn Stewart of Glenn Stewart Horsemanship. You know, as this podcast has evolved, we try to bring you a variety of content with our traditional inspirational interviews, our life enrichment series, A Little More Rain, and now experimenting with these longer formats, our multi-episode guest interviews. So far, the feedback has been great on social media, but we continue to encourage you to reach out to us, let us know what you think, let us know about potential guests, people you want to hear on the show. You can reach us at Let Freedom Rain Podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. Now, as mentioned earlier, this is the second episode in a three-part series with Glenn Stewart. In part one, we kind of touched on his history and how he got started in horses. Here in episode two, we really focus on some of the formidable years that set the tone for Glenn's life. You'll hear an incredible story when Glenn first went out into the mountains to work. And after you hear what was expected of him, quite frankly, most people probably just would have quit. As always, we hope you find value in the show, and we hope you share the show with a friend. We hate to keep you all waiting any longer. Here is episode number two with Glenn Stewart. There was never any time there where they said, well, he's hard to catch because of the way we treat him, and he pulls back because we don't know nothing about getting a, a follow in the field, and, you know, you know, nobody ever said that. You know, it's it's funny you mentioned that, the horse hard to catch. The, the horse that I currently own when I first purchased him, I was told, you know, never turn this horse out in big pasture or big acreage because you'll never catch it. When I first started to pursue horsemanship and understand, I can't even say understand, start to sure. learn the ideas of timing and feel and pressure and, and engagement, right, and a, and a horse wanting to be with you. It was just that. I turned him out in an arena and, and I was going to take my halter out like I did every single day. And it took 15 or 20 minutes to follow that horse around until he sat still long enough to, to halter him and take him back in the pen. Mm-hmm. And uh, that day I was with my wife and grab a halter, walk into the arena. And I, I just had that moment like, okay, if you want to learn this stuff, let's see what we can learn. And I walked back to my wife. I said, hold on to this halter. I'll be back in a minute. And she's just looking at me like, you're an idiot. We're going to be here all night watching you chase this horse. And uh, <laughs> really tried to take my time and really tried to focus. And I was able to walk that horse from the arena all the way back in and uh, did it in a fraction of the time that I had traditionally done it, you know, chasing him around with a rope halter. So yeah. it, it does take that level of awareness and things can be done that, that you don't think are even possible. And that's just a very, very fundamental skill in the world of horsemanship, but it was definitely a light bulb moment that man, there's there's something to this stuff. Yeah, with the um, the way we used to do things in the in the mountains is that we'd run run all the horses into a big corral, and they're all wild horses. They're born and raised on the side of the mountain, and they don't see people. You know, the, the most that a horse would see a person is three months out of a year. That would be the absolute most. Lots of them see you less. Like some of them might see you four days out of a year. Every year, four days out of a year, they see you and that's it. They're gone back out to the woods and you got to go round these horses up again. So they're wild. When the people say they wild horses, they go, they're as wild as they get. There's nothing, nothing yeah. wilder yeah. Out, out there. They're living on, they, they were born on the side of the mountains. They're running with the wolves and the grizzlies and, and they, they live in herds and they fight with each other. And I mean, fight bad enough that they tear holes out of each other, these horses and, break ribs and and they they're wild regular everyday wild horses <clears throat> so we bring these horses in and uh to halter broke uh break them we'd rope the horse and then we'd as soon as that rope touched them they'd go nut bar you know and they're yep. already running around the pit scared anyways and then we'd rope the horse and we up we'd creep up the rope trying to get close enough to him because we were trying to get a halter on him. Of course, once you get a certain distance from the horse, he's pulling back this whole time. Once you get a certain distance, he comes ahead at you with, with the front feet. Yeah, so so I can take you on. Yep. Yeah, so you try to avoid the front feet and, and sometimes you're lucky and sometimes they get you a few times with striking you and you got to duck and dive and get in there and grab him by the head and you're hanging on. You got your arm over his neck and one hand over his nose and he's flinging you around and rearing and pawing and somebody throws you a halter and you hang on with one arm and try to get the <laughs> halter on with the other one and and, uh, and then he shakes you off and you drop your halter and he steps on you and then you start again. Yeah. 
and over and over all day long, all day long trying to get these horses. So that's their initial experience with us. We didn't know any different. That is what they showed us. So yeah, and I was going to say it's even no fault of you at the time because that's the best that you knew, right? The best we knew. So at 17 years old, we're just in there, and, and uh, my great uncle would giggle and laugh because our shirts would be torn, you know, and we were just covered with dirt and sweat, and we'd have skin missing and bleeding and. And these old wild horses would have their way with us, and we'd finally get them all altered. But that's what I'm, you know, that's just one example of, of uh, you know, what I meant when we didn't have it a better approach, but we had to get the job done because if yeah. we didn't, we'd have yeah. to deal with my great uncle, and that was way worse than a wild horse. Yeah, might as well go <laughs> get bit and kicked. Yeah, so let's <laughs> get in there. That'll be better. Let's get in a pen of wild horses. That's safer. And so we go get that job done. Then, uh, until we'd get them haltered and then everybody just tie the horses to the fence. That was, that was it. There was no, it was just get them to something to tie them up. So we go get another one. There was no getting the horse quieting down. There's no, we just didn't know. That's just how they did it. And so I'm learning from the, the experts that have been doing this for 40 years, you know, isn't it absolutely and, incredible thinking which or knowing what you know now, thinking back on that, that you guys even yeah. got anything done. Oh, well, I mean, we get her done and we, yeah. we but we get her done, no question. But oh my gosh, what a rodeo and what yeah. a wreck and yeah. what a lot of pain and agony and stress for everybody involved. Um, so, so then when we go to catch the horse the next day, well, he's not real happy to see us <laughs> because he goes, "Holy hell, here we go again!" You know, you can't just go walk out there and pet the horse and put a halter on him after that episode. And you tie him to a fence. And I remember the one day we tied. I don't know what we probably had 20 horses at least tied to this corral. And we just tied them. If there's a spare post, we tied them to the post again, inexperience uh, got us into big trouble that day. And we tied all the way along this one side of the fence and we left the other side open thinking that, well, that we have that fence open so we can work, you know, catch these horses and, and they won't be running into the other ones that are tied up and, and, you know, we can kind of keep them away from there. But we didn't think that, they don't, none of them are halter broke. None of them lead. They just been caught just, you know, that morning wild horses. Well, they all one spooked or whatever and, and, and pulled back and that got the whole works of them pulling at the same time. And they pulled the whole corral over all the rails, all the posts pulled out of the ground or broke. Oh, geez. And so we got 20 head of wild horses dragging half a corral. <laughs> just moving the pen, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. Just completely <laughs> empty. It just completely pulled the whole side of the corral down. So we're all in inside having lunch when this melee took place so we just you know jumped from the table and got our boots on and run for the corral and now we've got to somehow get in there and untie all these yeah horses that are running and jumping and pulling back every direction we can't you know we just caught them they're wild we can't get near the buggers yeah. and now we got to untie this rope that's as tight as it gets and it the fence is laying on top of the knot and there's rails dragging everywhere that you're trying to jump and dance in between so you don't get a broken leg. Gosh, what a fiasco. Well, yeah, there's just more of those things that went on than you could shake a stick at because of uh, just the lack of knowledge. And, well, the scary and part is is that the circumstance you describe is probably not unique. I guarantee it's happened no, right. in ranches all across the world. Yeah, I see it. I've seen it. At, I've seen it with broke horses. Yeah. I've seen people. I've went to uh, – um, horse shows and gymkhanas and all kinds of different things where I see, yep, everybody's tying to that panel over there or those four, or that side of the pen, it's all a bunch of panels, there's no posts on there, one horse pulls back, the fence rattles the whole bloody works, and these are pro horses. Yeah. You know, quote unquote. Yeah, supposed uh, to be. Yeah. So I've seen that happen, but uh but anyways, we'd get in there and deal deal with the situation, get the horses all untied, go fix the fence again, get them all back tied up. Get a serious ass chewing from my my <laughs> uncle, yeah. and uh, uh, onward to go. But now we do it completely differently because I t I take students up there and, and we work with the horses because, or you know, so for the last sixteen years I've been taking clients up there and they can come up, and uh, you know I might I might uh, halter thirty horses in a day, wild horses. Um, depends on the day, you know, or what we're doing or what what's happening. But uh, they get to witness that because most people have never seen a wild horse, let alone watch 30 of them get haltered in a day. And some of them, you know, the clients that have been with me for a while, I'll hand them the lead line, you know, once I get the halter on the horse and say, there you go. Starts, what an incredible experience to take an animal that has literally had very little interaction or and maybe no interaction at all with a human being and, 
be able to yep. put that first touch on them, you know? Yep. Some of them have never seen humans or some have seen a human, but never been touched. And there's all various, various levels and things to learn. And some are old brood mares that, that have been having colts for a year. And, and, uh, in the past they would come in and, uh, they weren't broke to ride or nothing. And we just bring them in and, and if they're, cause the colts will stay with their mothers out there in the wild, they'll, they'll stay with their mothers forever. Like they don't leave their mothers. They they could be six years old and they're still with their mom. And you'll have, uh, you can have a yearling, a two-year-old and three-year-old still sucking their mom. Wow. And you can have the three-year-old bigger than their mom. It's still nursing. But they stay right in those groups. And, um, uh, so you get to see all that too and learn about horses from that perspective and that, you know, people say a lot about wild horses and go, wow, I don't know. That's not been my experience. <laughs> I've yeah. been watching them for 30 some years now. I've been watching yeah. wild horses and see what they do and what they don't do. And they don't wean. Um, you literally see a three, three springs horses all sucking mama. That's incredible. Um, yeah. So atypical to think uh, as, as compared to a conventional horse, right? Or conventional breeding program. Yeah, yeah, because we we make sure that they're separated. But um, yeah, anyways, there's uh, exposure to all kinds of things up there that you just wouldn't get exposed to in other places, and and uh, you can apply this new way of thinking where you you know you use confidence, respect, and understanding, and you you look at the horse from that perspective and go, is it a respect problem, a confidence problem, or an, or an understanding problem? That um, why we're not getting this done or, or, or we're getting this kind of reaction from the horses that confidence, respect or understanding, or is it two of them or all three of them? Yeah. And, uh, I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, I mean, one might be leading the other, right? It might be more of a confidence issue than a respect issue, but I think all of those play a, play a, a contributing yeah. factor in a horse's hiccups. Yeah. And, and it can, and sometimes it's strictly a confidence thing, mm-hmm. but the reason they're unconfident is because they don't understand. If they understood, they wouldn't be unconfident. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it comes out as disrespect. But rarely is it disrespect because if they had the confidence and the understanding, there would be no, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing, you know. So it's rarely a respect problem. Yeah. Um, uh, sometimes they are doing something, you know, we would consider disrespectful, like the horses. You know, some people might say that, well, pulling on the halter is disrespectful or cow kicking or striking is disrespectful or biting is disrespectful or something. And I go, but if I watch the human and the horse interact, they go, well, if I was that horse, I'd bite that human too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, nothing There's plenty of people. <laughs> yeah, he needs a Sorry good bite. Sorry, you heard it. Yeah. He needs a good kick. Um, so they go, that horse is, that horse is. And they go, well, you, you know, you absolutely earned that. Yeah, yeah. So you've literally taught all around the world, horsemen from all around the world. In your experiences teaching all around the world, what are some of the things that that you've learned that you never thought you would learn before? Some of the things that you've been exposed to that you never thought horsemanship would open that door? Well, that's kind of a multi-question there. Um, one of the things that I've learned by teaching all over the world is that we're not near as different as we think we are. <laughs> really? Really? People feel like they're real individuals and, you know, we're, when yes, in some ways we are, but there's so many things that we are absolutely the same at. It's, it's, uh, shocking. It doesn't matter where I'm at in the world. It doesn't matter what language they speak. It doesn't matter what kind of saddle they put on the horse. It doesn't matter what kind of background they come from. <clears throat> there's certain things that we are actually born with that, uh, we can't avoid. You, you can, you can train yourself out of it. You know, the ones that you don't want, keep the ones you, that are, beneficial and get rid of the other ones but um we're very similar in some in some ways and some of the ways are we like to pull we're kind of micromanagers and we like to hang on to horses we're direct line in our thinking which you've heard that i'm Mm -hmm. sure a million times from people um so and people to really understand what that means is you know, they, it's easy to say, "Oh, good, we're direct line thinkers." Oh, good, we did pull on the. Oh, great, great. But to really mean that or understand the depth that we have, our hands close too quickly and open too slowly. Um, we don't offer feel to a horse. We're real herky jerky in our in in what we're doing with our hands and our legs and stuff. And people go, "Okay, good, good, good," and but the depth of that is way more than. You know, as years go by, I'm even I'm learning. You know, I've been doing this for 20 years. For Pete's sake, you'd you'd think okay by now, I get mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. But I'm still 
even this is my job and my career and, and compete at world level and all that stuff, I'm still finding out, okay, I can get softer and smoother at this. And, oh, wow, I didn't realize I was doing that. And, of course, teaching people and seeing it, you, you really, it's a real education, a real eye-opener, because, again, these things keep popping up, certain things that pop up over and over and over. And that are some of the things <clears throat> and that we're very similar in, is that even the most passive person is rough on a horse. And, uh, um, often, you know, passive and aggressive people would probably feel that the best deal for the horse is the passive person. And I don't know if that would be true. Um, I'm not, I wouldn't promote, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not promoting either, but I, I don't think being passive is any better than being aggressive. Yeah. Neither one, neither one is what I, I would say be assertive with horses and understand what assertive might look like. Cause if you look at other horses and how they act with each other in a pasture and find out what they call assertive, cause they're not out there, they're not mad all day and holding grudges and all this stuff. They're just, they're just doing what they do in the moment. Um, so if you watch what they do and see what they call assertive and then say, Oh wow, that's what assertive could be. Yikes. Uh, and then be comfortable with that. But the pass being passive does not mean that the horse is getting a good deal. It can be, it can, I've seen passive people. I've, I've probably seen more dangerous horses with passive people than I have seen with aggressive, but for sure. And would, what do you, would, what do you think causes that? The passive personality creating, creating um, a lot issues? of, well, often we'll just call it nagging. You're nagging the horse. He never knows why you want him to do it. Cause you never finish the job. you it's too passive, too soft. Yeah, too, you're lacking the follow through. Yeah, and 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 it's soft as a meaning doesn't mean you you didn't start as soft as you should. You started way too rough, you know. However, um, then you didn't follow through. You started too rough, but then you wouldn't do be clear enough and follow through to get the horse to do whatever he was. So he doesn't know what it is you want, so he slowly gets and you know annoyed. And he gets, and he knows that he can move you around, and he can tell you what to do. And so, you come along every day and nag on him. And at some point, he wants to, you know, chew you. Just be fed up with it. I've literally watched horses open their mouth and put their mouth right over the back of the person's head where their hair was wet, and he didn't bite them. But they they were so close to biting them in the head, it was unbelievable. Wow. And, and I've, I've watched horses kick their owners and, and everything. And it was absolutely this constant nagging where the horse just can't stand it any longer. <clears throat> and uh, he wants to – there's just no – there's no way for him to get away from this nagging. And it, it just drives them nuts. And they uh, – and they're a different personality in horses, obviously, but I've seen the exact the, the the horse, the one horse that I'm thinking of, that grabbed that wanted to grab the lady by the head. He threatened her day in and day out, and I and then you know as I'm trying to teach her and trying to get her to do this and that and the other thing, the horse was just getting so frustrated with the thing that he finally did that, and I so I bought the horse off her. I said, "Hey, thank you, deal, buy the horse off you," and um, because he's probably going to hurt her, and and there was nothing wrong with the horse. I mean, I took him and used him and I, you know, used him lots. He's just not a problem. Not a, never seen that behavior again. Um, <clears throat> but he was so frustrated with this lack of direction. Mm-hmm. Just a lot of mm-hmm. muddle, muddle, fuddle um, that, uh, yeah, he just he hated, had enough. Yeah, just <laughs> he, had enough. he hated his life. Yeah, he hated his life. He was like, please give me a new human. Yeah, that's tough. <clears throat> yeah. So... Yeah, there's uh, all kinds of different things that you that you see over and over and over in clinics, and and like I said, it doesn't matter where you go. Uh, I've teach in Brazil often, and just about never do they do they speak English, and I don't speak Portuguese, and so they just have to watch. So I will show them I'm talking, but they don't understand what I'm saying. Yeah, um, and then I'll show them what it is, and then then they go to they go to it, and I can't. If they're doing, if they, so they start and if they've got the technique wrong or something, I can't even tell them while they're doing it. I can't say, oh, you know, lift your hand there, put some feel on the rope. I can't even say it because I can say it, but they don't know what I'm saying. Yeah, so I have to go, hey, 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 hey. Now I got to make a, you know, a universal, hey, yeah. hey, hey. <laughs> and they all, then they all stop and they look at me and I re-show yeah. them yeah. and away they go. But they actually go just as fast 
absolutely as fast as, as people that do understand English, which is an interesting thing to me. And I'm not, you know, I've stewed on that when I go, what the heck is going on there? Like what I say, is it that confusing? You know, or, you know, I'm, I'm trying to go like, are we so in our head because we understand English, we just sit there and wait to be told 40 times or, you know, I really, it's really a pondering, interesting thing because Literally, I've taught a bunch of times in Brazil and not once do they understand English and they will absolutely do as good, maybe better. We might be going faster and doing a better job without them understanding the language. So it's like, you know, there's there's a few concepts of communication that I've considered over the years. And it's this idea of perception versus reception, right? How do you perceive that you are sending a message? Okay. And how is it? How is that message actually being received? And oftentimes, we as human beings, we're trying to cue a horse or teach a horse, right? We perceive to be sending a certain type of message, but we never necessarily consider how that message is being received by the horse. And I think this is kind of where the breakdown happens with putting too much pressure on a horse, right? Or pulling on a horse too fast. We think we're soft. We perceive ourselves as soft or slow or gentle. But that message is not received in that same regard. And I wonder, as you sit here and talk about teaching people in Portuguese or the the difficulties between Portuguese and English and not having that common communication. I wonder if because these Portuguese students are only relying on or primarily relying on their, their um, sight to understand the message, they don't have the confusion of actually hearing the message and seeing the same message and then trying to mash those two perceptions together mm-hmm. to make and an actual message. Well be, could very well be that they hear, hear a, a certain thing said and then they they put that into their their own interpretation what, of it per se. Yeah, what they yeah. if they said that what that would mean. Yeah, or versus something. just seeing it. I mean, you're just seeing it. You're not hearing what yeah. is going on as well. I don't know. But it, but I don't know either. I think some of it has to do with culture. I'm I'm leaning stronger towards culture yeah. because something will be as simple as lift your left hand, lift your left hand, lift your left hand. Mm-hmm. Just lift your left, like raise your left hand above your shoulder, lift it yeah. up straight up, yeah. just go straight up. And you can say that 900 times sometimes in certain situations and they will not lift their left hand. I can show the guys in Portuguese, I'll say lift your left hand, they don't understand what I'm talking about, but mm-hmm. I lift my left hand, they lift their left hand. Um, so I wonder somewhat if it's cultural thing too, because I know for a fact how you've been raised, what you've done for a career, what you call, you know, what you've done for a job absolutely makes a huge difference to what you and how you perceive and do the rest of your life. Like that mountain experience is the best experience in my life. And very little is told you up there. You have to watch, pay attention or get in serious trouble. Like they will, you know you know give you some hell they're mm-hmm. not going to explain to you in great detail every move to make and you know how to do every little thing and make sure you breathe and you know on and on and on it goes they just give you a three-word thing on this humongous job that you're about to embark on something you've never done or seen in your life and they give you you know one sentence and you got to deal with it from there so you have to learn to watch and and there's serious consequences if you don't they expect you to be able to figure it out from that one word of sentence and, and do a good job. And let's let's break off and talk about this mountain experience just to kind of develop it and give it a lot more context. I know in previous conversations we talked about, you know, you had this experience as an early adolescence, or I guess, what, 17, 18 years old was kind of your first experience working in the mountains. Um, what are the life lessons that horsemanship and or these experiences kind of afforded you? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, we've talked about it. So I suppose the listeners that don't wouldn't know, but I, so I went up to the mountains as soon as I graduated, I went to the mountains. So I graduated and you can start in the mountains, uh, in July. So I would go up, fly up into the mountains in July and stay there till the, you know, October 31st, November 1st, something like that. We would come back to town and often to get to town, you had to trail the horses out. So these horses, these wild horses that were living in the mountains, there'd be some that were getting arthritic or something like that. So we would have to take the older horses to town and trail them out at the end of the fall. So you'd be in the bush for a hundred days doing, uh, you know, living up there and working the horses. And then often to get to town, you get, and you got to think about that for a second. Um, put yourself in, in that scenario. It, if even right now to this this day or whatever, this moment or any time in your life, if I took you for a hundred days and put you into a place that you've never been before in your life, stuck you up there with no family, no friends, no phone, no music, no 
you know, nowadays the iPhones and all the computers, all that stuff, you can get none of that, no phone, no telephone of any kind. And you're sat back there and your only job is to get to work. Uh, you know, most people today to be away from all that for a hundred days, you know, if some people get all excited if they're gone for two or three days. I say people might die from that. They wouldn't have their iPhone for more than two days. Yeah. It's such a big deal. You know, so you think of that concept and try to wrap your head around what that is like, the feeling of that. Um, and while you're there, you're you're generally sleeping on the ground. Um, you'll have a tent of some sort over you, like a, a lean-to type tent, a fire out the front of your lean-to tent, which you do all your cooking on. The heat inside that tent, the only heat you get, not all, some of them, we'd have a stove inside them, so they were quite a bit nicer if you had a stove inside the tent. But uh, often we'd have just the campfire outside and just the little bit of heat that would waft and get caught under the lean-to. That's what you would get dressed and undressed in the morning. And, you know, if you're out in the rain all day and you're completely soaking wet, you'd go to bed and your clothes are completely completely soaked and you'd hang them as best you can but you can't leave them outside because it'd get more wet so yeah you kind of you got to somehow try to figure out how you can hang them on a rope or something and maybe they'll somewhat dry up air dry and a little bit of heat from the thing and then crawl back into your clothes in the morning that are wet and then later on in the fall you crawl back into clothes that are frozen your pants or <laughs> your socks are frozen uh you'd leave uh. your socks on in your bedroll because because crawling into your frozen socks was was not any Miserable. fun so you yeah so you just you put your you leave your wet socks on and just stuff them in your bedroll and you're in that bedroll for three months or 100 days you're sleeping in that bedroll with wet socks and sometimes your pants would stay on and you'd crawl into that thing just be just because you know it's like yeah you need the insulation too cold or whatever and uh but you would literally get up and crawl into frozen your pants are wet and frozen so you'd crawl into that your shirt's frozen and wet and you crawl into that your cowboy hat still soaked from the day before you put it on and so you got to wait for your body to heat that stuff up and you're now you're out of tent you're you're you get up in the morning it's freezing out you crawl out of your bedroll so you're kind of somewhat warm in your bedroll and you crawl into these freezing clothes and you stand and huddle around that fire but you can't just stand and huddle around the fire you got to make the fire first because it's not it's not somebody and as a wrangler when you start that's your job you are the first one up you make all the you get the fire going then you go find the horses so at four o'clock in the morning you're off into the you're going to the mountains to look for your horses to see where they got off to and try to round up your horses and sometimes they'd pull out on you and so you have to track them and, and you have to look in the grass and see where the grass is bent over and try to find a um a track somewhere along the creek or see if they got on a game trail and 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 sometimes they would pull out not on like you you trail into these camps and it might be a day or two ride to get to these places and you turn your horses loose at night they'd be hobbles and you put a bell on a couple of them so you uh, have an easier time finding them but even with hobbles they can gallop they can cover some distance yeah they get used to it so in an evening in a in a night from when you go to bed to the next morning heck there's no problem being five miles from where they were easy oh jeez. so you got to track them that five miles through the mountains and you're, you know, you're, you're doing that at four o'clock in the morning and you haven't had breakfast yet. You got up, made fires for everybody. And then you get out there and you go to where you think the horses might be. They're not there. So you check out another spot, not there. You start checking for another spot. The whole time you're looking for tracks to see if you can pick up some fresh tracks. And of course, if you've been there for a week or 10 days, there's tracks everywhere. So you've got to determine the fresh ones from the old ones. And then, uh, get to hunt those horses and like i said you might find them in there they're three hours from camp um and you go find the horses and then you got to chase them all the way back to camp the guides are all upset because their horses aren't there and they can't get out hunting it's a hunting camp so get the horses all saddled up they take off and then you eat whatever cold breakfast there was left over on the fire they'll leave you some pancakes and then you uh the wrangler's job would to haul water and get water into camp and and bring firewood in and so you're always trying to put lots of firewood in in at the camps and uh, you'd be there by yourself all day uh, unless you're lucky enough to have a cooking camp um, if you didn't have a cooking camp then the wrangler's job was also to cook he didn't do breakfast because he's out getting horses but he'd have to have supper ready when they come in and then you had the uh back when my great uncle run it 
you run a pretty tight ship there, so he wouldn't send bread with you other than for the first day. So you could have sandwich bread for the first day, but after that you had to make your own bread or bannock or something. So you'd be making bannock on the fire, but you had to get firewood in too. So you'd get your bannock mixed up there and you'd cook the bottom and then you had to brown the top of it. So you'd prop it up against the log and then you'd go off and get some more firewood and ring some trees and cut some down and drag him with the horse and you'd go back and check your thing every once in a while, put some fire on it. And then you'd be late one time getting back in the whiskey jacks that ate a hole in the middle of your bannock. So you'd get, that was Good your sandwich grief. stuff for the next day. You cut, cut the, cut the peck marks out of it and make a sandwich for him anyways. Um, you just didn't have time to keep yeah. making more bannock. Plus you only had so much flour and everything to do this. And then the, when they said bring the firewood in, you'd be in some of these camps and they didn't want to disturb the wildlife. So they wouldn't let you have a chainsaw. So you had to cut all the trees down for firewood with your axe or with a Swede saw. So you'd cut, you'd just be there sawing away with the Swede saw to cut a tree down. Just go out one day and try to cut one tree down with a Swede saw, just one. And then take that tree and cut it into firewood lengths with your Swede saw and just see how long that takes and how much sweat's dripping off your nose. Yeah, I was going to say, as you describe all of this work, I'm thinking, okay, uh, there's only 24 hours in a day. So I don't even know how you're getting anything done other than taking multiple days to accomplish all this stuff. It's incredible. Every day, it was, that was the pattern. Um, and my head guide that was there, he said, um, you know, I said, well, how many trees? Because I'd never been there before, so I don't know. So I said, how many trees do I need to cut down to bring into camp? And he said, 100. Excuse me? I said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. I had no clue. I don't know. I, I no, no foggy clue. I'd hadn't been up there before. So he said I had to bring in 100 trees. So you got to go find 100 dead trees on the mountain, cut them down with a swede saw. Then you get your saddle horse out, get a pick a horse, and you put a rope on it, and you drag the firewood into camp so you're dragging 100 trees into camp and then you start cutting them all into while well, you're cutting some while you're going but still the majority of the trees are there because 10 five five trees is a lot of firewood you know it's a lot of firewood but for whatever reason he said 100 so 100 it was so i brought 100 trees in and you got this huge stack of logs there and then you start cutting with your sweet saw and i didn't there's saw bucks or cross cross bucks or I forget what they call them saw bucks where you just put make an x with with two trees and you can set your log that you're calling you lift it up and you put one end in there and it's up at a you know waist height so you're not humped over cutting your trees all day I didn't know that so I'm just on my you know knees cutting trees until somebody showed me that but you cut all that trees there's just wood stacked everywhere I mean there's hardly a square foot in camp that didn't have logs piled up and then uh, the next job was he said well split it all so holy smokes okay to split 100 trees so i split the whole thing now there's twice as much wood there because it takes up twice as much room there's even more wood stacked around then he said well go ring 30 trees because what i wanted to do was go with him up on the mountain when they were hunting for the day i wanted to go see what was going on and get out of camp and so i kept saying well you know if i you know what do i got to do so i can come follow you guys around and say say the you know 100 trees and to split them all or cut them all, split them all. Then he said, go ring 30 more for, you know, the years coming. Well, anyways, I finally got that all done. And and uh, there was enough firewood. Literally, they never set a wrangler there for the next five years. There was no no need for one. There was so much firewood there. <laughs> oh, uh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, oh. uh, yeah. So, yeah, that was your daily daily thing. Go find the horse, start everybody's fire. So if you went there and there's five or six fires to start, you start everybody's fire before you leave camp. So you're first guy up and just shivering, you know, from one, but you just hustle from one place and next, get these fires all going. Then you go off, find your horses, bring them in. If all goes well, perfect. You'd still be miss breakfast, but you just eat some cold pancakes and then you get to start bringing in firewood. Make sure all the water buckets are filled up. Keep an eye on your horses all day because they, they start wandering off back out into the forest. You got to keep an eye on where they're going and where they're headed. And, um, yeah, and then you get to the first day that I was allowed to go with them after I got 100 trees done and 30 trees ringed and all this stuff. He finally said I could go, so we went. We run up the side of the mountain, and he was uh, trying to outrun me. I didn't realize he was, he'd was he been hunting all day. Every day he's climbing mountains, hunting sheep, but I was in shape too from all the work I was doing. And he did, 
you know, didn't realize that I was in that good of shape and I, nor did I know, I, you know, I didn't know. I just thought I should keep up. I'm going to get in trouble. I'm getting, you know, heck if I don't stay right with him. So he's darting up the side of the thing like an antelope and I'm sticking with him. And that just annoyed him that he couldn't outrun me, I guess, is the only reason. Because I couldn't figure out why he was mad when we got to the top of the mountain. But anyway, <laughs> well, he's mad as hell when we get up to the top. And, and uh, then he says, okay, stay right here. We'll be back for you later. And so, okay, cool. So there's this little shrub that was not more than two feet tall, just kind of a round little shrub on this big old bald mountain right on the very top of the mountain. So I, he said, stay right here, don't move. And I said, okay. So I parked her by this shrub, and that's where I spent the whole day. And I was, it was like 9 o'clock that night or something. They come walking back and pick me up, and back to camp we went. So that was my first day on the God, what a luxury. About, Cut down you know, 100 trees and then go sit on a bush by yourself. Yeah, I just curled up <laughs> under the bush. The wind started to blow and stuff, so I just snuggled up underneath that bush because, you know, you can't start a fire or nothing up there because yeah. they're, they're looking for game and whatnot. So I snuggled under this tree and then headed her back to camp. But that gives you a, a bit of a – why I'm telling you the story is because it gives you a bit of an idea of the, the daily – the day-to-day stuff and and what was expected of you and and there was just you know it was it's just, that's just your normal everyday stuff i mean there's i could tell you a hundred stories about uh, the mountains and the things that went on there and that is very very unusual in people's day-to-day lives um and it was one of those old school of you know old school things that they don't tell you nothing. You got to figure it out. You got to watch close, and if you don't, you're going to get into big trouble. If you if you guess wrong, <laughs> you're going to get into big yeah, trouble. Yeah, but so I mean, I, what an opportunity! Because obviously, it's going to instill. It's either going to make you or break it, right? It's going to instill a level of work ethic that's going to carry the rest of your life, or you're going to be so miserable by it, you're never going to want to do it again, right? And in the same regard, I think it it gives you the value of of being grateful. Right when you are given opportunities, or when you when you do have a breakthrough, or when you have less than desirable work conditions, yeah. you know it never was as bad as being on the side of that mountain or freezing or mm-hmm. dragging a hundred tr- hundred trees through the bush. You know, um, yeah, that 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 whole experience, I wouldn't. I, there's no way you know, I'd be so sad and so upset if I never had that experience. You don't know that there's those experiences out there to have, yeah. but I, I I'm so fortunate so grateful so happy that i had those experiences because you know the the awareness for example that it teaches in you uh you know to watch because if you don't watch you're going to get in so much trouble and even when you do watch and you do exactly what they did you still could get into trouble yeah because they they forgot what they did and and they're they're giving you hell for something they just did five minutes ago yeah it was just different sort of a not everybody, the different guys acted differently, but, um, but I wouldn't turn, I wouldn't trade that in for nothing because, uh, it just like since then, whatever, if somebody gets upset or is one of my, the, the head guide was mad 24 hours a day. And I mean, real mad about everything, about nothing. And you just had to be around <laughs> it all day long. Uh. And, and you just like water off a duck. I mean, not then it wasn't. I was yeah, like shipping yeah. and shaking and yeah. I was, a, you know, worried about it. And then I was thinking, man, I'm a mess. I just mess up everything. I don't do anything right. Jeez, I should quit. You know, yeah. just a horrible little bugger. And, uh, but then since then, if I, somebody, you know, I've been in you know, bazillion situations and I watch people get upset about things and I just go, well, I don't know what, that was kind of pointless. Yeah. Um, it's and, not that and, big of a deal. Yeah, it's just there's so many, you know, people get upset about all these first world problems that we have. And uh, they're not really, there's so much bigger things to get excited about without going out and looking for things to get excited about. There's plenty of real things to, you know, but getting excited about stuff just never really helps anyway. So It doesn't, it really doesn't. Um, but it's hard because a lot of it is human nature, right? Emotional it's human driven. Nature. Yeah. And, um, you know, anyways, the the things that I went through there, I go, well, just just nothing really rattles my cage anymore like people can do whatever say whatever and it just doesn't rattle my cage like oh well they're having a bad day oh they have a bad temper they don't have they don't have much control of their emotions oh well oh well well it's not a issue for me and so i can carry on without where i'll see other people you just say you just say hurry to somebody and they will have a oh they'll come unravel yeah Yeah. that's like 
you know, it could be crying or whatever. You say, hurry, hurry. Yeah. And they're oh, my God, you yelled at me. Oh, my, you know, and it's like, holy smokes, yeah. princess. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's an incredible experience. And obviously, we've tra- as, as we've traveled, right, our, uh, the journey of this episode, you know, uh, there is no doubt that you've – You've collected an overwhelming amount of experience, right? Not only in life, but with horses alike. But I want to kind of talk about as as you work with horses in your life, where were you at when you made that decision that you know what I'm going to be a professional at this? I'm gonna I'm gonna make a career of it. Well, I had been working, um, as I'd mentioned there earlier, that I've been working a lot, doing a lot of jobs that I didn't really like. I was a carpenter. I actually don't. I like that. I do cement work. I like that. Um, I run a heavy equipment and drove truck and I've worked on fishing boats and I've been a diamond driller and a tobacco picker and, uh, can't even remember all the different jobs and careers I've had over the years. The only thing that stayed common or the common thing that I did yearly was the horse part of it. And then, uh, it wasn't until I seen that you actually could, when I seen that there was actually people out there making a living with horses, that was that was when I first thought, you know, because I got a like anybody else, I got bills, I got a house, you know. And at that time, I had a house to build, I had land to buy, um, and so I thought, well, you actually can make a living at this, but you're going to have to go and learn some stuff. Um, and uh, and thank goodness I didn't just hang my shingle out because I'd been in the mountains for a hundred years and or a uh, hundred days of the year, and and I'd been starting colts. And thank goodness I didn't hang my shingle out then. Thank goodness I went out and spent a bunch of time learning a program, learning a system, really getting to, you know, learn about horses and seeing how to put a business together and get out of that, you know, get out of that crowd or situation that I was in where, you know, yeah, you know, I've been around horses lots, but big whoop. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who so cares? These guys, yeah. Who cares? Um, I thank goodness I didn't hang my shingle and start saying I'm a professional and here, come and get a lesson for me because it would have been a short lived deal. Uh, it would have never mounted to anything. Uh, the experiences that I've had would never have happened. Like the places I've been and the things I've been asked to do would never have happened. There's, there's no possible way. So thank goodness for whatever stars were aligned or whatever happened that I went out and I actually got some real education and, and tried to hang out with some of the best in the business that that made a, a life out of it. And uh, started doing it that way. And then uh, when I was with the Prelly organization, then they they you know said well you know you're ready now you need to start teaching and even then i was like oh no i don't know i don't know you know i'm not as nervous as heck about starting to do any teaching of any kind even with all the experience i know plenty of teachers that that are teaching that don't even have the experience that i had in the mountains like they're not even remotely close but they're already teaching so i'd done that plus went out and spent a lot of time with the probably and learned their program and a bunch of the you know spent 12 years actually there three months a year mm-hmm. sometimes more than three months a year um learning that program and, and learning everything i could learn about that and picking up lots of good skills and exercises and, and uh, techniques and under you know looking at things differently they had a whole different approach to stuff and uh, of course some of the other names that i'd mentioned there that Ray Hunt and I've watched Buck Brannaman and, and uh, different people, different people that I, that I went and watched that are really good horsemen that I don't think anybody knows of. You know, I don't know. So some people would know them, but they're not big names in the industry. Anyway, so learned from a lot of very good people. I went and hung around them and heard their perspective on things because the the perspective is is at least half the battle. If your perspective is 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 mixed up, you're not going to go very far like um i did a talk again not too long ago it was to a bunch of horse people but it was on strictly on perspective and it was about i just asked a whole pile of questions to the people on perspective i didn't i didn't answer anybody and i wasn't looking for an answer from them it was just the talk i spent two hours with these people with a group of people and they hired me to, to, to visit about any topic i wanted to talk about and i said well perspective is, is what i want to talk about because um, I know not just in the horse world and not just working with horses, but perspective absolutely shapes your life. And you have a choice in your perspective because your perspective gives you your reality. Whatever you perceive that went on or what happened will give you your reality. And you have a choice how to look at things. So I can look at that story in the mountains and all the things that went on there. And like I said, I can tell you 
ton of stories. I, I should, I, when I tell these stories to people, they go, oh, I had to quit. I can't believe you did. That's horrible. That's terrible. That's this, that's that. My perspective was completely different than that. It was not horrible. It was not terrible. It was just fantastic. And the more I look back on it, it couldn't be better. Yeah. Uh, one time, I, I, uh, we're packing up to leave camp with all these horses. So we, so you got to put certain saddles, certain saddles on certain horses, certain pack saddles on certain horses. And you're supposed to remember all the horses names. So I've never been there before. I've never seen the horses. So now I got 20 head of horses. I got to remember every horse's name. Now on top of that, I got to remember what saddle supposed to go on every horse, like every pack saddle, every, where it's supposed to sit, you know, how you're supposed to do up all the cinches. I never seen all this stuff, all the pack saddle stuff. Yeah. How overwhelming. Uh, so I'm supposed to know all this stuff, but without being told. So they don't say, there's no name on everything. Like there's not a name on the saddle that says, you know, that's Blaze. So if you can remember Blaze's name, this is Blaze, Blaze's saddle because it's got Blaze written right on it or something like that. They weren't all named. Um, uh, and But Blaze's was actually, so that's part of the story. <laughs> but most, most saddles, yeah. you know, there's no names. So you had to remember, nobody told you. They'd say the green one goes on that. You had to be aware of, the green one went on that one. The red one went over there. And, and that other green one went on that one. Another red one went on that guy. But we're not using those horses this time. We're switching. We're using these other horses. So they're not even getting pack saddles. They're getting riding saddles. Oh, my God. Now what saddle are you supposed to put on? Oh, Jesus. Where do these green saddles go now? And the red one and the green and the red one. You don't know. So, But nobody's explaining to you how they fit or why. But mostly they didn't know anyways. For the most part, they didn't know half the answers. So you're, you have to just remember and be aware. And, and nobody's telling you to be aware. It's just when you go to pack up the next time, they give you hell because you didn't remember. You go, well, I didn't know I was supposed to remember. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, you're big trouble. So Blaze come to camp and and Blaze, Blaze is there. And Blaze had that saddle on him. I, I remember because I'd been in trouble a few times now. So I'm thinking, I got to start. I got to memorize this stuff how somehow. So I quickly grabbed Blaze's saddle. I thought, well, let me get one thing right today. And I throw the saddle on Blaze, strap it all on. Well, the head guy, being mad that he is all the time, he just gave me a ripping and told me to get out of his sight. And <clears throat> you dumb little ass and get out of here. You never do anything right. I don't want to see you for the rest of the day. Get out of here. Get out of our sight. So I take off and I go down by the creek to sit down. And we're moving camp. So it's an eight-hour trip that day. So I'm supposed to be out of sight for eight hours, at least. And I don't know if I'm allowed to be, when we get to the camp at the other end, I don't know if I'm allowed to be in sight then or not. I've <laughs> <laughs> so just monitored everything. And by, God forbid you oh, ask a follow-up question, right? No, I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to ask him okay to be seen when I get there. Um, so I just monitor by his behavior and see if he's mad at that moment or if he's calmed down or what. <laughs> so... Uh, I'm hiding out at the creek and they all leave and I'm peeking through the trees because I'm not allowed to be seen. So I see them all leave and my horse still tied to the tree. So I, you know, walk out carefully to make sure he doesn't, you know, he can't see me and they're gone long, gone down the trail. And then I ride along by myself for eight hours in the back of the string because I'm such a screw up. (laughs) (laughs) You're supposed to be out of sight. Uh, Just do your job. Oh, yeah. So... So I'm giving myself a tongue lash and like, God, I got to smarten up. But I'm sure that saddle was on there and I know it was. So yeah. he's like, he his day that, but I still get into trouble and that happened often, but whatever. So a lot of people would have quit. They said, I quit, you know, I'm done. I quit. I give up. I, you know, I'm getting shit for stuff that I even did right, you know? Yeah. But I didn't look at it that way. And actually when we got back to the main camp where the main boss was, he, the main boss called us into the office, me and the head guide that had that was always giving me hell and he brought us in there and i thought well he's firing me you know i'm obviously fired because i just one big screw up after another <clears throat> so i get into the thing and uh my great uncle goes so you know why you're here because we never get to go to the big house he had his own house over to the side there and you never get to go over there you're either getting in big trouble or going for a whiskey and i knew this wasn't a whiskey trip <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> so my process of elimination. Yeah. I, well, somebody's in big trouble. So I get there. He goes, you know why you're here? And I go, yeah. And he goes, what? And I said, well, I'm fired. I know I, I've been just messing up a lot. And he got this real quiet and quizzical look on his face. And, you know, he kind of squinted his eyes and he says, no, you're not fired. I've never seen anybody work so hard in my life. I've never seen so much wood in one camp in my <laughs> whole life. 
And he said, I've never seen anybody work so bloody hard. And I had lost so much weight that my pants were pulled together with a, a binder twine string because my belt wouldn't work anymore. Oh, I'd, put, I'd put holes and holes and holes in my belt. And I had binder twine and had that sucked up around my weight to hold my pants on. And uh, he said, no, I'm making you into a guide. Like you're, you know, that's the process of things. You go from Wrangler to get whatever. So he says, no, I want you to be a guide. He says, I want you to work, you know, you just did a hell of a job. And I was like, wow, wow. I come in here thinking I'm fired. Yeah. He said, no, you're getting a promotion. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, and then, yeah, the, the, the rest of the story, when I got my butt kicked down to the creek, I guess the hunters took him out to the meadow and they said, hey, we've been listening to you yell and scream at this kid and swear at him since, you know, since we started this hunt and we're, you know, we're, we're sick of it. We didn't come up here to listen to you and, and you got to, you got to quit ragging on that kid and leave him alone. And the, the head guide, he said, yeah, you just mind your own business. I'll do what the hell, run it yeah, yeah. I want to. And the one hunter was a pretty big dude and he just stroked him, I guess. Just oh, knocked no him his ass in the meadow. Yeah. Knocked him right on his ass. I didn't run none of this because I'm down at the creek. Yeah, I you're out of sight. <laughs> I had no clue about any of this. <laughs> well, good for them for sticking up for you. Yeah, so it was a, it was an interesting how it all you know how it all went. Uh, we get back to camp, and then the head guide he corners me when we were there, and he starts, "What the hell did you say? Now you got everybody and got me in trouble." I didn't still know what he's talking about. I didn't know he got the hunter hit him, and I didn't yeah. know that there was this big turmoil. And the hunters went to the head outfitter and said, "Hey, look." to the boss and he said hey this is what's going on that kid's getting run rabbit over there and, da, 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 da. and so all this went on behind the scenes i didn't have a clue about it i'm walking around there with my lip hanging down figuring i'm gonna be fired and can't do anything right and and uh, but from all that i realized that the fellow with the temper he just got a temper i mean that's he was raised that way yelling screaming and being mad about stuff and handling things you know just just handling things in a way that that's just how he handled it so yeah, it's just bitter to this day i see him and I, we're friends and i hey how's it going i'll have a beer with him i don't have one ounce or thread of upset or anger anything towards it whatsoever it was the best experience i could have possibly had i wouldn't change it for nothing um because it it you know you just had to dig in there and, and Thankfully, I guess, however, I was raised before that because lots of people would have quit with way lesser things. I didn't just give up the ghost and went home. The opportunity I would have missed or that I yeah, would have missed would have been just unbelievable to quit and go home because, oh, somebody yelled at me. No, I, I guarantee. I mean, your your perspective was such a blessing in a lot of this because uh, as you sit here and describe everything, I guarantee I'm not the only one thinking, like, how much do you have to put up with, right? Yeah. They're less than desirable circumstances. You're working harder than a hog on everything. And then you got this guy down your throat all the time. I mean, no, that's not desirable at all. Um, but, right, uh, success and successful people were forged in fire. That's just the way it's done. To be successful in such a situation, you are absolutely correct. Your perspective is everything. We cannot control the circumstances that we are faced with. We cannot. There's no way, shape, or form that you can. However... Thanks again, everybody, for listening to this episode of Let Freedom Reign Podcast. Again, you can find us on social media under Let Freedom Reign Podcast. If you want to support the growth of this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash Let Freedom Reign Podcast. Again, we thank you, and we'll see you on the next one.